Ladies and gentlemen, my name is RWB Lada, and I, me and my people have been burying other people on this central convenient location since 1937. I'm not too proud to tell you I, I like to bury people. I like to embalm people. I like to make you look natural and lifelike. As lifelike as lack in life will let you look. And I will fix you up and put as much rouge on you as your family will stand. But I will do it at bargain prices, unlike these two clip joints on the corner. <laughs> they just bleed you dry, I tell you. They went $12,000 to get Granny underground. Now, I look like Granny is some kind of good, but $12,000, I say 198 is more like what cog I hear you. And I'll tell you, like this child here, $39.95. I appreciate that. So, so take her right down. Just as carefree as you're going to be. So I'm, I'm, I'm here to try to try to convince you to use my services. And I, what I have to do, since people are not dying in your body, I try to influence you by putting on a show that will stick in your memory for that terrible moment on U.S. 40 and something goes terrible, terrible wrong. I want you to remember these words, 1-800-RWB-LOUD. That's me, and I will come with my pickup truck. I will come with my backhoe, and I will get you on the ground quicker than you can you Jack Holmes. Dateline, Hillsborough, October 31. It's that time of year when we remember self-taught mortician R.W.B. Latta, now retired to Boca Raton. He offered trick-or-treaters a coffin full of candy and a sales pitch, promising deeply discounted and artistic funeral services, with examples galore of his work. To clinch the deal, he treated potential clients to a mashup of skits, the stuff of which nightmares are woven like ensnaring spider webs. The crowds couldn't get enough. 500 souls lined up each year. It was the haunted house party where everyone was invited and no one stayed long. Where the ghouls within supported Mr. Latta's advertising efforts to drum up business for his funeral services. They offered tableaus of fright and politics and frightful politics. Mysterious, hilarious, bilious, rebellious. For more than a quarter century on All Hallows' Eve, the spookiest and most overrun place in town was the Latta Funeral Home, which took possession of writer Alan Gerganus's otherwise very respectable Tryon Street bungalow. It started long ago. Even before the house was finished, the carpenters who were working here, who were extremely skilled, said about September 1st, this house would be so great for Halloween. This would be a great place to have a haunted house. The boards are out, the doors are open, um, the saws are in evidence. It would be really scary for kids to come in here at night. Let's all get together and have a haunted house here. 
So it was my carpenters who came up with this idea of the house as a witch's house, and it's become a tradition now for 26 years of scaring the wits out of the neighbor kids. Welcome to 27 Views, the odd cast where we chatter with some of the most frighteningly brilliant writers in the American South. Here we explore the most haunted recesses of this corner of the country. From the boggy banks of the River Eno in nowhere, North Carolina, I'm your ghost host, Elizabeth Woodman. Today, we are visited by the players who frightened thousands of unsuspecting and innocent souls, lucky enough to have wandered into the chaotic glory that was the R.W.B. Latta Funeral Home. Themes varied from year to year. R.W.B. shared the stage with a host of ghostly characters, some of them terrifying, some well-known, some both. Joan of Arc, Melania Trump, Barack Obama, Pamela Anderson, Osama bin Laden, the messages were shrieking and clear and quite often political. And the MC, the talkative and scheming funeral director R.W.B. Laddett, a.k.a. Alan Gerganus, welcomed the eager and the skittish into his spooky candlelit central hall. His supporting cast of 20 or so players lurked in two front parlors, and if Mr. Latta hadn't scared the daylights out of you, the player's skits were guaranteed to disrupt your sweet dreams. Writer Zachary Vernon bravely ventured in one year to describe the Halloween event to the uninitiated. Here's a snippet of what he reported back. Just after sunset, people begin lining up on the sidewalk outside of Gerganus's house. At around 6.30, he beckons forth the first group of sugar-addled children and parents, some of them clearly uneasy. Twenty or so enter the large foyer of the house. The rooms on either side of the foyer are the stages on which political theater will be enacted. Gerganus is dressed like Abraham Lincoln in a black tux and stovepipe hat. He has shaved off his mustache and dyed his silver beard and hair brown. The likeness to Honest Abe is uncanny. Hi, come in, don't be shy, Gerganus calls as he corrals the people into a tight circle in the foyer. In honor of the election, I've tried to dress like a certain U.S. president, he says. The audience responds with laughs, and I think even the children know who he is portraying. Affecting a slow country drawl, he says, I didn't know I could look this bad and feel this good. Launching immediately into the backstory of the haunted house, Gerganus explains that he is an untrained funeral director and mortician named R.W.B. Lada, that the house is his funeral home, and that he offers cut rates to families who don't ask too many questions. Due to the economic downturn, Lada is having difficulty making ends meet, so the haunted house is essentially an advertisement. With a pitiful expression, Gerganus addresses the crowd, I'm in a deep hole because I just can't get anybody to die. So I just want to talk to y'all about letting me bury you. 
I don't mean tonight, Organus assures them. You look like you're relatively healthy, some of you at least. Organus singles out a young girl and locking eyes with her, he says, I could bury this young thing for $79. I'd put her in the ground and you wouldn't smell anything. The child is wide-eyed with fright and her parents grin uncomfortably. Gerganus gestures to two human forms behind him. I'd like to show you some of my work. I do beautiful work. First, Gerganus reveals a life-size model of a human body, the kind used in medical school, which has cross-sections of the torso cut away. This fella here, I've been working on his systems. The second human figure is a woman. Her head and torso are carved from wood, and she looks like she could be the masthead of an 18th century cargo ship. This, according to Greganus, is Sheila, who came to him after getting into an accident on the way to cheerleading practice. He says, I just couldn't bury her. I've been using baby oil and furniture polish on her for years. She sleeps right with me. And sometimes I take her to Walmart, just put her right on the cart and ride her around. People are so sweet, they jump out of the way. To send the young kids over the edge, Gerganus claims to have a baby named Debbie that he keeps in his vegetable crisper. He holds up an infant-sized princess costume, which he found last time he and Sheila went to Walmart. He begins weeping and shouts, I just had to have it for my little Debbie. Gerganus takes a moment, collecting himself. Now on with the show, he says. For the 26 years that the funeral home opened its doors on Halloween, actor Jane Holding was ever-present, bringing a host of earthly and unearthly characters to the trick-or-treaters. It's a kind of indwelling of local souls that come and inhabit the house every year at that time. It's pure invention. And of course, Alan is our inventor. He is the Prospero of Halloween for us. And uh, he becomes a character called Mr. R.W.B. Latta, a transgressive man who is at the same time just innocent in this radical and breakthrough sort of way, his innocence and the degree to which he can tell you his secrets without seeming to overshare. <laughs> it's just amazing. But it starts with Alan going down into the basement and bringing up the coffins. Huh? For those of us who've visited RWB's haunted house over the years, many of the performances featured coffins either front and center or as backdrops. And we're not talking plastic and cardboard. They were the real deal. A gift from an anonymous donor who attended Alan's first haunted house. The man was so impressed, he arrived the next day with three 19th century coffins in the bed of his pickup truck. Sizes adult, child, adolescent. As far as anyone can figure, the coffins had never been deployed into action, but were quietly stored in a church basement out in the country. Writer Zachary Vernon was in for a surprise when, over the course of his reporting, he offered to help Alan prepare for Halloween. He turned to me and said, rather nonchalantly, well, we should probably go get the coffins out of the basement. I'd expected to install fake spider webs, maybe carve a pumpkin or two, but coffin hauling 
caught me off guard. When we reached the back of the house, I could barely see the basement door, which was covered with a layer of decaying leaves. Gerganus gave the door a tug. As it swung open, mole crickets and granddaddy longlegs scurried from the light. He walked halfway down the steps, stopped, and clapped loudly three times. Turning back to me, he said, you wouldn't believe the creatures that live down here. Alan tells the story of one year going into the basement to retrieve the coffins. He heaved the largest one, the adult size, onto his shoulders. Unscripted, he suddenly felt something inside, and a family of possums started dive-bombing over the edge. Alan said it was the strangest sensation to lift what he thought was an empty coffin and feel something come to life. But the show must go on. He regained his composure and continued bringing up the coffins. Speaking of the show, I was curious about how this all happened. What was the process for these yearly productions? Were Alan and his team of players sharing the same nocturnal Google Drive? Artist Dippy Patterson and her late husband, Neil, were among the regular players. Maybe two weeks before, Alan would send out a kind of bulletin and he'd have his general theme. They all fell into a similar kind of wonderfully ghoulish quandary of the ill and the well the dead and the alive. It was political theater on all the eaves of election years, going back to George Bush. But then on the other three years, it was the morality tales. It's become a tradition now for 26 years of scaring the wits out of the neighbor kids and also showing the neighbor kids many of whom are coming in from the country. Their parents want them to come to a safe town. They're country kids who grew up in conservative religious households, Republican households. And for them to see the mayhem and the craziness of liberal, educated, crazy people who throw up in their house to anybody who wants to come in, who don't charge admission, don't ask for anything in return except fun, for these kids to see 30 grown-ups behaving like fools and dressing up to entertain and amuse them, I think it's been part of my political mission in Hillsborough. It's really a way of educating kids, not only who grew up a block away, but who are from far out in the country. And sometimes if I'm at Walmart buying a rake or something like that, a perfect stranger will come up who's now 30 years old and has three little kids and said, are you doing it again this year? I know exactly what he's talking about. And then he begins to tell me his favorite moments from all the Halloweens and all the tableaus that we've put on all these years. To live on a street seems like an arbitrary designation, but there's an element of fate connected with it, and there's an element of reciprocity with the community. They feed you and you feed them, and they amaze and amuse you, and you try to be equal to what they offer. If he played the Statue of Liberty one year, other years she played Barack Obama, taking selfies, and she played an array of other ghouls. 
you would be one of six little skits in your room or seven, and then across the hall were the other seven. So you would perform your own with your partner or alone, and then listen to the others in your room. And all through that, listen to Alan unveiling who you were, unveiling what your distress was, and what kind of arrangement you had with your own fate and your own conscience. James Reeves and John Johnston were also among the players. Listen to James describe their standard skit. The one we did most often was when Alan's theme was the seven deadly sins, and John and I were envy. We would wear our tuxedos, we had, I think, magnifying glasses, and we would sort of pick at each other because we wanted to know what he had that I didn't have and I wanted it. John talks about the year he and James teamed up with their friend Cecil Wooten for a political sketch. It was that year when, in North Carolina, there was the um, constitutional amendment uh, vote against gay marriage, unfortunately. Cecil was dressed up as a bride with a veil. Oh, he looked okay. And James and I were in our usual tuxes. And we were with our backs to the door into the hall. And then when Alan gave us our cue, we turned around and sort of walked up to the door with Cecil and Drag in the middle and John and I in tuxes on either side. And what it meant, I'm not sure, except to me it meant that we were there to say that this amendment was a bad thing. Here's Jane. You know, there's a lot about Halloween that's instructive. One of the things that I think we all pressed our limits to find were those ways that we could kind of help out our own secret selves by performing the forbidden emotions that we felt but may have been ashamed or embarrassed to express. I mean, one year I just went completely hog wild as this woman who was or claimed to be Elvis's last girlfriend. <laughs> I, I just have never behaved that way. But that was part, that was me. Of the dozens of tableaus performed over the years, a few have taken on almost cult-like status. The favorite being, of course, Alan's R.W.B. Latta, the evening's impresario. But the other one mentioned by everyone I spoke with starred Jane and her friend Daisy Thorpe. The theme was vanity. Jane was in her 50s and Daisy about 80. Here's how Ippy remembers it. The first time that I ever went, I went as an audience member and I remember standing in that hallway and looking to the right and seeing the back of Jane and Daisy Thorpe across from her. And Daisy was framed by an old gold antique frame. I think that Jane was looking at herself in the mirror every time she moved. Daisy was her reflection and moved in perfect sync. And Daisy's face was sort of cobwebbed. It was so effective. Alan considered it one of the great sketches of his 26 years. He had placed identical flower vases, identical flowers, identical candlesticks with lighted candles on both sides of a woman's vanity. He then stretched silver wire across the interior of the frame placed in the middle of the table to give the illusion of a mirror's surface. 
It appeared that the 50-year-old was looking into the mirror at her 80-year-old self. At first, kids thought, oh, that's just a woman brushing her hair in the mirror. But then they'd realize that there were two people there, not one. It was a haunting sight that stayed with everybody who witnessed it. Here's Jane. You know, talk about learning through Halloween. Alan is a teacher. He is a teacher in every part of his life. Not only has he really had hundreds of students who still write to him about the great effect that he's had on their lives and their work. And he's a teacher, I think, to all of us who are his friends because he, he makes things possible that otherwise, I think, wouldn't occur to people. The watchword for Halloween is invention. This great redemptive human quality that everybody might have some of, but for most of us, it lies too dormant. And we need a spark. And Alan is that ignition of the biggest truck engine you ever saw that permits and, in fact, is satisfied with nothing less than invention turned loose. We'll give reluctant coffin holler and Halloween observer Zachary Vernon the last word. Compared to the contemporary political arena, with its canned talking points and overproduced campaign events, Gorganis' pageant captures a feeling of playful anarchy that carries with it a genuine sense of authenticity, freedom, and acceptance. This spirit is fundamentally American, and both liberals and conservatives should heed the fact that the American imagination contains multitudes. We have been visiting with retired funeral director R.W.B. Latta, a.k.a. Alan Gerganis, and his friends who brought Halloween in Hillsboro, North Carolina, to a new level. For 26 years, they hosted and produced a haunted theater that was so popular they had to deploy crowd control measures. In addition to creating and nurturing R.W.B. and The Haunted House, Alan is an award-winning, world-renowned author. Among his best-selling novels are Oldest Living Confederate Widow Tells All and Plays Well with Others. He's also a painter, an actor, a designer, an artist in every sense of the word. Many thanks to those who were interviewed for this retrospective. Players Jane Holding, James Reeves, John Johnston, and Ippy Patterson were also very generous with their time and their wonderful stories. Photographer Roger Hale provided brilliant photos he took over the years, and you can find them displayed on our website. We also owe a debt of gratitude to filmmaker Will Weldon and writer Zachary Vernon. Will dug through his archives to find the audio clip of RWB, which was featured at the introduction of this podcast. Zachary read snippets of his fine essay, Halloween's Herald of Democracy, Alan Gerganis and the Horror Show of American Politics. It was published in the North Carolina Literary Review, and you can find a link to it on our website. 
hand to Alan and his brilliant RWB Lada. We celebrate you and thank you both for elevating All Hallows' Eve into a magnificent, soul-stirring event for 26 unforgettable years. As a post note, we hope to create an archive of the Haunted House. I encourage all players and attendees who took photos or videos or wrote notes or stories of the Haunted House over the years to let us know. My email address is on the website at enopublishers.org. That's enopublishers with an S at the end, dot O-R-G. There you will find on the show notes page for episode 20, Alan Gerganis and the Haunting of Hillsborough, photos of the event by Roger Hale and Ippy Patterson, and the entire clip of Will Weldon's RWB Latta recording, as well as the recording of Alan reading his story, Old Houses and Young Men, which appeared in the anthology 27 Views of Hillsborough. Alan has been featured in two previous episodes of the 27 Views podcast, Episode 7 entitled At Home with Alan Gerganis, and Episode 8, Elizabeth Spencer and Alan Gerganis in Conversation. Hope you'll give them a listen. 27 Views is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Woodman. That's me. Editing and mixing supervision are by Mark Maximoff. Executive producers are Elizabeth Benfi and Ezra Rawich. Music for this episode is entitled The Haunted House by John Abbott. It's available on Epidemic Sound, and you can find a link to it on our website. Sound effects are from Epidemic Sound and Soundstripe. 27 Views theme music is from the composition called Quarry in the Meadow, written and performed by Bruno Luchron. Please join us next time for more stories and voices of the South on the 27 Views podcast. <laughs>